Yeah, I'm really pumped about uh, our topic of discussion today. I'm really pumped about this because I believe this is one of the most ignored things in the majority of churches when it comes to how to study the Bible. And I believe it's one of the most essential, important things that we need to, uh, to understand. How do we study the Word of God? If you missed last week, I would invite you to get online and just go to thecrossloganville.org and you can either uh, access the video or the audio. But last week we talked about why study the Bible. And if you get your why right, it starts to fuel your what's and your how's in life. If you, get, if, you, if you don't have a good why at your foundation, you may start and you may dive out of it real quick. So we want to see people stay established. Now, now, how many of you realize and really know this, that God is a relational God? Yeah, yeah. God is a relational God. When you go back and study uh, scripture, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed with incredible unity and intimacy with each other. I mean, I mean, when you start to study the Trinity and, and just how God works, it's like they've always worked together with such harmonious intimacy. Some 6,000 years ago, uh, God created man in his own image. And God created man for the purpose of relationship. Do you know that? God, God looked down and he had created dogs, donkeys, and dinosaurs, and he's like, I'm going to create one uh, who's capable of interacting and living out life kind of like us. So he created man, triune, body, soul, and spirit, and he created man for the purpose of relationship. The word relationship comes from the root word relate. I want to write this down because the word relate means to connect with in meaning and in thought. See, that's why God made us. He wanted us to connect with him in meaning and in thought. And so as God creates man, he looks down at man and he said, it's not good for you, man, to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. And so he creates, whoa, man. And, and they're hanging together, yet they disobey God. And they sin, and sin disrupted humanity at every level, and sin created this gap, if you will, between fallen man and holy God. But God was still chasing the heart of man. And throughout the pages as you study it, God is a relational God and he continues to pursue the heart of his creation. He loves man. And so God, being a relational God, looks down and he says, you know, I, I'm going to give my people something because I'm relational and I'm going to give them a tool so that they can relate with me. And God gave us this holy book. There's 66 books that make up this one book we call the Bible. And in these 66 books, God has created us, uh, created for us and to us this relational love letter. And this book right here is a relational book. It was written over a 1,600-year period of time. God used some 40 different men and, and infused and empowered by the Holy Spirit to pen his words. God goes, oh, I want y'all to know, I want to communicate and connect with y'all in meaning and in thought. I want to give you my word. This, this book is a relational book. Uh, uh, this book is alive. It's, it's sharp. It's more powerful than any two-edged sword. Don't miss this. This ain't a dead book. Uh, th th this is not a book you can just uh, 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 pick up and read one time and go, I got it. It is a living book. It, it's always speaking to us as we pick it up. Because God loves us. And in this, in this book right here, 
God tells us who he is. He tells us what he's really like. He tells us who we are and what we're really like. He, he shows us how to do life. He shows us how to walk with him, how to worship him, how to enjoy him. He, he, he lays out in this book how to do marriage, how to do relationships, how to parent, how to manage finances. I mean, you, you're looking for answers. This living love letter relational book has it. Now, th- th- this is phenomenal for me. Now, now, if God is a relational God and this is a relational book, how do you get to know a person even on the horizontal? Well, you spend time with them and, and, and you ask questions and you dialogue with them if, if you're going to have a healthy relationship. I, I don't know about you how yours works, but if you're going to have a healthy marriage, it requires work. If you're going to have healthy friendships, it requires work. If you're going to have a healthy relationship with you and your kids and in parenting, it requires work. And if you're going to have a healthy relationship with God, it's going to require some work. We don't work for our salvation. We're working from it. But if we're going to have this intimacy with God, it requires work. It's like this. Uh, My buddy Ted Barrett, uh, I've known Ted for about 18 years. Ted's a major league umpire. And Ted, last year, called the World Series. This year, he got the National League Championship Series. And uh, Ted is a major league umpire and has been for over 20 years. Now, I don't know if you've ever observed baseball and the culture of the baseball world, but umpires are really not liked and appreciated too much. Matter of fact, when the umpires walk on the field, the home team, the visiting team, and all the fans are pretty much going to boo those guys at some point in the game, right? I've never seen the umpires after a game walk out to their car and a line of kids be there at the gate saying, can I have your autograph? I've heard a lot of S words used toward umpires, but it wasn't signature. That's what I want. But Ted Barrett fell in love with Jesus and Ted, uh, is a solid born again believer. And Ted went and got his masters and Ted's an ordained minister and, and, and Ted's 6'5", about 250, former gold glove boxer, sparred with Holyfield and Riddick Bowe and a bunch of them. And, 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 and Ted's a stud. But, but Ted started looking at this fraternity of major league and minor league umpires, and he says, I want to reach those guys with the gospel. So he started a ministry called Calling for Christ. And he launched this years ago, and he's like, you know what? He said, I'm going to send out nuggets. I'm going to send out texts and emails. And, and I want to infiltrate these other guys that umpire for a living. And so Ted became almost a pastor to the umpires as an umpire. So Ted started doing these retreats. And so last weekend, he had this retreat out in North Texas. And so he, he's got over 40 major league and minor league umpires that came to this retreat. And, and, and so he sends me a text on Sunday afternoon, and he's like, Cash, man, you got to check this out. And so there's a portrait, a picture, where he's standing in this swimming pool, non-heated swimming pool. All these dudes have got their hats on, and, and Ted is in this pool baptizing guys in the water. And so the caption read, hey, there's this young minor league umpire that got saved. Here's the portrait of me baptizing him. He's in your area. He's going to be communicating with you soon. 
So Monday, I, I get this phone call from this guy, and he goes, hey, Tim, Ted gave me your number. I'm a minor league umpire, and uh, I wanted to see if we could set up a time to meet. I'm like, yeah. So we set up a time on Wednesday, and he comes over, and we're sitting in my office. And so here's how it went. Here's how it went. So tell me your name. Oh, cool. So I write his name down. Now, where, where are you from? Well, I grew up in this area, and I went to Brookwood. Oh, that, that, that's cool. So you went to Brookwood. Now, how old are you? I'm 21, almost 22. 21, already a minor league umpire. Hey, look at you. So, so how many siblings do you have? Well, I got two, and my brother, and da-da-da. All right, all right let, me, let, let me ask you this. Uh, your mom and dad still together, and I'm making notes, and what type of spiritual kind of marinade do you come from? Well, my dad had a little Lutheran flavor, and my mom was Jewish, and my dad starts going really to temple with mom, and I, I mean, my brothers both went through bar mitzvah and all this, and by the time I was six, we kind of quit going. We went to a Christian church like twice, and when I say twice, I mean maybe from the time I was six to 18, maybe twice I've been to church. Uh, that, that's my background. Well, when, when, when did you start getting intrigued with this guy, Jesus, and what, what made you kind of interested in him? Well, you know, I had classmates in high school and stuff that a couple of them were really like locked in with Christ and they shared it with me. And I've met a couple of other minor league umpires and they've shared it with me. And, and, and I'm dating this girl that graduated from GAC and she's at college up in Tennessee and she's been sharing Christ with me. And matter of fact, she bought me the ticket to go to this retreat. And, and so when I was out there and Ted was sharing the gospel, Man, I just felt overwhelmed, man, by the Lord, and I repented and asked Christ to save me, and I got baptized, but Tim, I really don't know anything else. Did you, did you hear what I did? Now, I just told you a story. The whole purpose of the story I just shared with you was this, 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 this. Don't miss it. I met a dude because I knew another dude that I had relationship with. And I started relating with this young dude that I just met, but I started asking him questions. What's your name? Where are you from? Tell me a little bit about yourself. God invites us to a relationship with himself through Christ, but he's given us the word. How do you get to know God? You've got to get to know the word. But it's a relational book. So, so as I move into this today, it's going to require us dialoguing with God. God, tell me a little bit about who you are. Uh, t tell me where Jesus was born. Why was Jesus born there? Who was his earthly parents? Why did you pick those 12 ragamuffins to be your disciple? Oh, it's a relational book. And that's where we're going today. Make sense? 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, it's in your notes, and it says this, all scripture is inspired by God, and, it, and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God can be adequate and equipped for every good work. The word of God, the word of God is inspired. The scripture is inspired. The, the word inspired there, and you may want to write this down because it really gives weight to this whole text here. The, the, the word of God is inspired. It means it's literally God 
breathed. God spoke through Paul and many others, and they were actually moved by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed his message through these guys. And when you look at this verse, it says, hey, Timothy, I want you to know as you pastor, as you pastor, I want you to know that this word is profitable. Anybody ever go into business and not want to be profitable? I mean, he's saying this stuff right here is going to make or break your life. How you lean into the word is going to make or break you. He goes, this word right here is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness. And, and, and it's just not a word play. It's so essential that this right here is going to show you what's right. It's going to show you what's not right. It's going to show you how to get right. And it's going to show you how to stay right. Anybody want to get right today? Anybody want to stay right? In this postmodern world of polytheistic style thinking and moral relativism, and anybody need to know what's right and what's not right? Anybody trying to figure it out in marriage and parenting, just in life in general? The breath of God. The same breath that he breathed into the nostrils of Adam and man became a living soul has been breathed into this. Is that not crazy? I'm like, oh, I love it. So here's where I want to go. Again, this book is penned by God. It's, it's orchestrated by God. It might have been, man might have been used, but it's all God. Now, as I get into this, this is important for me to know. In the 1200s, in the 1200s, Chapters were first introduced to the Bible. When, when, when the Bible was written, it was just written. Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi, Galatia, uh, Corinth, Rome, whatever. The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all this stuff. It was written. Listen, listen to this. When it, when it was written, there was no chapters. Verses were not added until the 1500s. That's important to know because when we get into learning how to study it, a lot of people, a lot of people will pay attention to whatever kind of little Bible you've got, and wherever it appears that a new section starts, that's where some people start. You can, you can really mess it up there. Like Ephesians 5, for an example, where, where it starts over verse 22, and it says, wives, uh, submit yourselves to your husbands. What does verse 21 say? Uh, be subject to the lordship of Jesus. So if both of you are submitting, where you start those little subcaptions matter. But they were added uh, 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 by some evangelicals and even some Catholics later on in life. Do you know that? Do, do you know that this book right here is the only book that claims to be the very word of God? Over 3,000 times in this, it says, thus saith the Lord. There's not another Koran or Joseph Smith or Watchtower publication that says that. 3,000 times plus, thus saith the Lord. What this claims to be is the very sayings, words, quotes, and statements of God. And as you study it, the fascinating thing is, after 30 years, 11,000 days plus of walking with Jesus, it never contradicts itself. Gallup did a, a poll years ago, and, and, and you can read like George Barna and some of the research that's been done, but a Gallup poll revealed that 82% of Americans say this, Listen to this, 82% of Americans say that they believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We would read that and go, oh, that's really cool. 
Yet, yet when they started doing this uh, survey with them, they asked them, name one of the four Gospels. And 50% couldn't name one of the four Gospels. Then they said, who preached the Sermon on the Mount? Less than, way less than half could even tell you who preached the Sermon on the Mount. So we, listen, listen. We live in this society where people say they believe it. What does that mean? If you believe it, you would read it. If you believe it, you would meditate on it. If you believe it, you would absolutely saturate your mind with it. Oh, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Name one of the four Gospels. I, I, I don't know one of them. You couldn't name Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, even stagger maybe onto one of those. So, 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 so just because you have a copy of the word, that, 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 that doesn't matter. It, it, it really doesn't matter. Our, our problem is, the majority of us sitting in here, our problem is not that we haven't sat under the word of God in teaching. Our problem is we've never opened it and digested it for ourselves. Right. Here's a cool slide. I want you to see it. And, and, and so they asked people, how often do you read the Bible? And they took men and women and evangelicals and Catholics and a variety of things in this survey. But I, these, these are the four I want to kind of highlight. So they asked men, how many of y'all read the Bible daily? 8%. How about weekly? 18%. How about monthly? 12%. Yearly, which means maybe once a year you pick it up. Look look at the numbers just in a general poll. Over 57% basically said, I don't even crack it. Then they asked the women, how often do you crack open the Bible, at least read something out of it? 15% 15% said we do it daily, and then 25% said weekly. Look at the numbers. They, they asked Catholics, how, how, how many of y'all, based on you saying you're Catholic, how many of y'all read the Bible daily? 4%. How, how many of you read it weekly? 16%. How, how about monthly? 13%. Some of y'all come out of Catholic marinade. You go, yeah. Look, look at the numbers. Check this out. Years ago, in the Catholic Church, they had a Bible, a copy of the Scripture, and it was chained to this big old podium. And only the priest was the only one qualified, or he was the only one that could open the Bible and read it. Even even though the people would go through catechism of the faith and all this stuff, nobody was permitted to have a copy of the Scripture. Joseph Grison, he makes a profound statement when he's speaking at the National Day of Prayer years back. Joseph Grison is a Catholic dude who really, really had fallen in love with Jesus Christ. And he's kind of a Brennan Manning style thinker. He wrote a little parable, a little book called Joshua. And it was kind of a modern day look at what Jesus would probably be like if he was living today. Grison is given the platform to speak at the National Day of Prayer. And so they introduce him, and he comes, and he stands behind the podium, and he says, Catholics love the church. Protestants love the Bible. Damn few love Jesus. Never forget listening to this guy going, he just rocked it because so many Catholics love talking about the church. Even when you do like this, look at how many of y'all read the Bible every day? 
29% evangelicals, 37% said weekly, whatever. How many really love Jesus? This book is given to us by a relational God that has connected our hearts back to him through a relationship with Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's given us this to foster an intimate relationship with us every day. Now, that's the reason most Christians are like bad film. They're overexposed but underdeveloped because they never spend any time studying it. So we've got to read it. And when you do, I mean, just be quiet and be prayerful and be thoughtful and be intentional. Don't try to read the Bible through all at one time. And, but I want to give you a game plan on how to do that. But, but, but you've got to read it before you can study it. And, 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 the, and the sad thing is, even in the church, you ask people, how often do you read the Bible? The percentages are pretty low. And then you ask them, how, how often do you study it? And they're pretty much nil. So I'm going to help you today. I'm life coaching you today on how to study the Bible. Not so that you can understand it, but so that you can understand it and use it. But not so that you can use it to ambush your friends that don't believe so that you can use it and implement it so you can walk with a king. So, so the first thing we're going to look at in studying the Bible is observation. It's in your notes. Observation is so important. So when you open the Bible, you want to ask this question. Whether you're starting in uh, uh, one of the Gospels, let's say, or, or, or whether you're in one of the epistle writings of Paul, uh, whether you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or maybe you're reading over in Romans or Galatians or somewhere, or you, you want to start by saying, all right, I want to read. I want, I want to read this entire little uh, book here. Remember, there's 66 books. And so if, if you go, I'm going to start in Genesis and read it through, they, they, they're not set up that way in the Bible. It don't work, it don't work that way. It, it really don't work that way. Uh, 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 so what, what you want to do is, let's say Ephesians. Let's say, let's say Ephesians. All right. Six chapters. Remember, chapters were added in 1,200 verses, 1,500s, but that's what we got. So, so we're going to look at it, and, and, and we're going to read through Ephesians, and all I want to do is look at it while I'm reading through it and just ask questions to it. Lord, Lord uh, who, who wrote this here? Who was he writing it to? Who was the primary audience? Uh, what, what is the, the real content in this little book right here called Ephesians? Uh, is there any contrast or comparisons? What, what are key phrases being used? Make sense? All I'm doing is asking questions. I'm not even answering them yet, but I'm just starting to ask questions to the text. It's been said that eyes that look are common, but eyes that see are rare. So I want to go beyond just the obvious and I want to spend some time in observation. Lord, who, who wrote this? So Antonio and my buddy Dean and Craig, we are going through the book of Ephesians. And I'll use that one. So, so we, we start to talk about some of this. And, and it's like, all right, next week when we get together, we'll just kind of uh, talk about just a broad overview of the entire book of Ephesians. That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, cool. So, so we come in and everybody's got their Bible and notebook. And so we're interacting. And so we start this conversation, and then Antonio says, well, I read through it. But then as I started looking at it, I thought, I didn't get past the first word of the first chapter of the first verse. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, it starts by saying Paul. 
He said, well, you taught me a few weeks ago that every person has a testimony. And every person's testimony has three major elements to it. Uh, it, it's who you were before Christ, it's how you met Christ, and it's how Christ has changed your life. He said, so I figured if that was true, Paul must have a testimony. He opens up his notebook, and he's got about eight or nine pages of notes on. Now, here's what I studied about who he was before Christ. Here's how he met Christ in Acts 9. Now, here's some things I've learned about how Christ has changed his life. Then he makes this crazy statement. I figured if I was going to read what he wrote, it would probably be good to know who he was. I'm like, you getting it. You are getting it. Who who, who is Paul? Who's Matthew? Who's Mark? Who's Luke? Who's John? Who's Peter? Who's Timothy? Who's Titus? Who's Epaphroditus? Who's Abraham? Who's Isaac? Who's Jacob? Who's this dude, David? Raker's up here praying like how much God loves us. And I'm sitting here going, David, wow. Did God love David more when he anointed him king? Or did God love David more when David is like kicking Goliath's butt? Or did God love David when he was committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband? Or, or, or did God probably love David the most when he wrote the Psalms? And, and I get paralyzed when I start studying and meditating on Scripture. I'm like, when did he love him the most? Every point of the way. Yeah. When did David trust his love the most? Oh, that's the question. When do I trust his love the most? When do I trust his acceptance the most? So, so I'm dealing with this in observation. Makes sense? So I'm, I'm going to fire questions. Now, please write this down. Please write this down. This is education today. So there's basically three primary different, uh, three primary texts that you'll read in the Bible. You'll read what we call a discourse. A discourse. Then you'll read what we call a narrative or more that which is story. And then you'll read that which we call just symbolic. Now, there's also these wisdom books like Proverbs and whatever, but usually three of the the primary texts that you'll come uh, come in, in contact with and study them will be these three. Now, a discourse is a teaching where one text and one passage builds on the next one. This is important because this way you're not going to a la carte and misuse and abuse the text. Uh, Next week, all I'm going to do is spend time with you on breaking down these two thoughts of a narrative and discourse. I'm going to take 1 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 is about, you know, what is the, who's the greatest one of us. And, and 1 Thessalonians 2 is about what does success look like in the church. So I'm going to take greatest and success and we're going to have fun with that. But when you're looking at a, uh, a discourse, one teaching builds on the next. And here's what you'll usually find. Like 1 Timothy 3, for an example. It says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, he aspires to a really, really lofty kind of role. Now, if any man, so when you study in this, you have to stop and go, man, that's an interesting word. Is it gender neutral or is it gender specific? Is, is, Is it just man, humanity, or is there 
And so, 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 so you start to study going, okay, he's about to build an argument here. Timothy, when you pastor and when you go out and appoint elders and we're, we're building these churches, let me give you some structure and formation here. He says this in 1 Timothy 3. He, he goes, uh, uh, an overseer must be, and he lists four must be statements in 1 Timothy 3. He goes, he must be above reproach. And, and he says, here's how he's above reproach, but it's all this teaching. Like he's the husband of but one wife, and he's not addicted to wine, and he doesn't have like this crazy love for money. And he lays all this stuff out, and he goes, he, he, his character and everything, he's got to be clean. Then he says, he must be one who manages his own household well. He's like, how can he manage God's family when his own family's jacked up? That's not going to work. So, so look at his personal life, then look at his family. Then he, then he says this, he must not be a new convert. Meaning, uh, hey, hey, a lot of people, when they first get saved, if you give them too much responsibility, they'll get cocky and arrogant. It's bad. Let, let him show himself to be proved for a while. Fourth thing, he must have a good reputation with those who are outside the church. If you're going to get him to lead God's people and reach out to people that are lost, how can he reach lost people when he's uh, worked them over in business and he's got bad, like, track record? Makes sense? So one verse builds on the next verse, and one teaching builds on the next teaching. You go, all right, I'm into a discourse. There can be a lot of truth here. Now, when you get into a narrative, it's usually a story. It's usually just a story. So you can look at David and Goliath, and you go, that was a story. John chapter 2, Jesus shows up, and uh, he's at this wedding, and they run out of wine. It's a story. So, so you can't spiritualize stories. And this is what Mike and I talked about so early on, is that you cannot take a text and spiritualize it and just make it say what you want to. Uh, John chapter 11, I've heard that one spiritualized and butchered many times. It's the story about uh, Lazarus when Lazarus dies, right? And, and, and Mary and Martha are weeping, and, and Jesus shows up, and they're like, if you would have been here, this would have happened. And I've heard people spiritualize John 11, and they'll say stuff like, uh, uh, Mary and Martha were weeping because their brother was dead. And if you're not weeping over people that are lost and going to hell, today you've got issues. And I heard some old Baptist cats years ago say that, and I'm like, that's not what that text is saying. It's not saying weep over people that are lost. They're weeping because their brother's dead. And then they would get to the place where they're like, and Lazarus, after four days, man, he began to stink. And if you haven't repented, and if you stay in your sin, you're going to continue to stink. And I'm like, so if I want to use uh, being dead in sin, I go to Ephesians 2. But I've heard people butcher texts before. So, so God doesn't give me permission to do that. Make sense? I mean, if I'm going to read it, I want to read the story. What, 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 what's John 11 about? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That, that's the timeless truth. I am the life. I am the only one that can conquer death, hell, and the grave. So when you get into a discourse and you get into a narrative, you've got to read them a little bit different. Make sense? Come on. I'm, I'm, makes sense. I'm trying to help you grow in your walk and in your word time. Then you'll get passages that we say are symbolic. Now, symbolic is uh, kind of this figure of speech, if you will. Like Jesus in John 6 made this statement, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't be my disciples. I, none of those guys went down like with a knife and a cup and sliced some flesh off of Jesus and got a cup and squeezed his forearm so blood could... It was symbolic. He, he's talking about my death, burial, and resurrection. And he, he's going he's gonna to break bread and have communion with those guys. And what he's saying is, and, unless you eat of my flesh, that it becomes broken bread and spilt out wine that's going to carry the sin debt. 
It's symbolic. You, you, you ever read that passage where Jesus says, uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Anybody read that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would be preaching to a bunch of pirates in here today if we took that one literal, right? Matter of fact, I wouldn't even have any hands myself. I mean, Stevie Wonder would have better eyesight than me if I took that literal. It'd be, what happened to him? Man, he just applies the Word of God to his life. No, that, that, that's, that's symbolic. So, so does this give you kind of a clue on observation? Let me move. So we're, we're going to move from observation then into interpretation. So interpretation is where I start to say, what does this say and what does it really mean? So I've already bombarded the text with questions. Who wrote it? Who is he writing it to? What are the key words? What are the contrasts and all this? And all I'm doing here is asking the Holy Spirit to give me insight into the literal meaning. So I'm going to answer the questions that I've already posed in my observation time. Jesus' conversation with Peter. So he says, uh, you know, he makes a statement like, uh, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, Lord, you know I love you. He's like, go, 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 go take care of my sheep. And then a second time, he's like, Lord, Lord looks at Peter and says, do you love me? You know I love you. Then, 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 third time, do you love me? And, and if you study that, it's crazy. Because Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you sacrificially, are you willing to lay down your life for me? And Peter goes, I phileo you. I brotherly love you, but he doesn't ante up. If, if you get the wording down, the text explodes. Make sense? So in this interpretation time, I'm defining those key words. Well, what does that word know mean? What does that word love mean? What is that? Come on. I compare translations. I may look at it and go, the New American Standard says this, the ESV, a little bit different, whatever. But I'm looking at different translations to go, what, what, what is the wording here? I'm doing cross-reference. I started doing this right when I got saved. A dude put his arm around me and showed me, hey, hey, it's, it's not that hard. And believe me, a dude that makes a 550 on the SAT, if he can figure it out, I think you're ahead of the curve with me right now. And I'm like, okay, how do I do that? How do I read it? How do I research it? How do I reference it? How do I remember it? So when I'm in interpretation, listen, listen, listen. When I'm in interpretation, I want to write down what is the main teaching of this text. So I've got my notebook. And I'm going to say, here's the main teaching of what this text is. Then what I'm going to do, I, I wrote down, here's the main teaching. Back to Ephesians, first three chapters of who we are in Christ, the last three, how we're to live as Christ. So that, that would be something I would write down, first three chapters. I, identity, last three, activity, I, I would write that down. And then I would paraphrase, paraphrase it in like a paragraph. You may have three or four sentences to go, here's what this book is really going to be about. And then I would write a summary sentence to go, I think I got it. If you don't do that, if you just kind of vaguely just kind of jog through it, you're going to miss a lot of it. Don't you want to know the word? Now, every, every, every relationship that's worth having requires work. So, so you can't sit here for 75 minutes on a Sunday like a baby robin and say, feed me. You, you got to eat during the week. You, you got to do some of the work yourself. Now, once I get into the observation that leads me to the interpretation, listen, listen, I've had people say this to me over the years. Well, you know, the Bible's confusing. There's just a lot of different interpretations. No, sir. There's one interpretation. 
God is the only one who has permission to interpret what God means. I've got to figure out, God, what did you say there? There's a lot of applications. There's only one interpretation. People have said it. Well, it's just according to how you interpret that. And you don't get a vote. You don't get to vote on that one. So as I spend time in observation interpretation, I've got to move to meditation. And meditation is so crucial throughout the day. Whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm studying, whatever I'm pondering, now I start to ponder that and contemplate it throughout the day. And I may have a couple of cards of just quotes written down on them or whatever, but I'm going to be going through going, Lord, keep my mind fixed on this. And the word meditate, you can study that on your own, but it's like the cow chewing or cut, regurgitate, 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 keep spitting it up, chewing on it, spitting it up. And it, it may only be just a small passage that you're doing this with. Then it leads you to application. So observation, interpretation, meditation now leads me to application. So here's the question you're going to ask there. How does this work in my life? It's not does it work, but how does it work? And James would say, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. So here's where I'm asking the Lord, help me to apply your word. Help me to apply your truth. Now, how does God's truth, here's the question, how does God's truth penetrate and change my soul? If I'm studying the scripture without allowing it to penetrate my heart, it would be like preparing a gourmet meal and never eating any of it. Barb, what are you fixing there? Well, I'm, I'm just fixing it for somebody else. That don't usually work too good about around our house. I made enough for y'all too. But, but if you're going to study it, God don't want you to just have understanding. He wants you to use it. It's not just so that I can have better information and education. God wants it to be a part of my very being wherever I'm at. And so when I'm here, here's here's what I'm doing. I've got my journal. I've got my notebook. I'm writing, okay, which truths based on what I just read spoke to me immediately when I read them? This is a relational book. It's a love letter. It's an intentional writing. What, What did I just read that spoke to me right now? What does this passage teach me about personal faith, growth, about giving, about serving, about loving, about whatever? What what, what, what does it say? What what am I supposed to do right now based on what I've read? Does this point out any sin in my life that the Holy Spirit's telling me I need to clean up? Is there there any challenges I just read that God is calling me to, to, to live by more faith and take some risk? Make sense? So during this time, is there any promises to claim? How do these principles and truths affect my attitude and action? Now, here's what I would say. Jesus made this statement where he says, if you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus didn't say, if you know these things, cool. Cool. We don't need more orthodoxy. We need more orthopraxy. We need to practice what God has revealed to us. So, so when he lays this out, is there a command to be obeyed? Then obey it. Is there a, a promise to be embraced? Claim it. This is the only time I have permission to name it and claim it. When God has named it, then I can claim it. I don't just randomly throw this stuff up in the air. Is there a warning to be followed? Heed it. If you skip this step, you're going to miss out on it. So every step I've laid out, observation, 
right, what, what, what am I seeing? I'm firing questions. Interpretation, what does it mean? Meditation, I'm pondering it. Application, how is God wanting this to be lived out? Get you a notebook and a journal and get in a quiet place and hang out with Jesus. And then the last thing is transformation. What is God doing to transform my life? Our proclamation here at the cross on Sundays, on Mondays, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, our proclamation is for the purpose of transformation. Our proclamation is not just so that you can spend time in observation or have a better education or walk away with a little information. Our proclamation is so that you would experience life change in your life as you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Acts chapter 17 verse 11 says this, those in Berea, they were were a lot more noble-minded in their thinking than those over in Thessalonica. Listen to what he says. They examined the scriptures carefully daily to see if what was being taught was truth or not. He says, man, they eagerly received it, but they carefully examined it. And here's, here's my prayer. I'm praying that God would raise up at the cross Loganville a bunch of Bereans in this sense. That, that we would have a group, a remnant, a large number of our people that said, hey, 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 I just don't occasionally pick it up and just kind of glance at it. I don't just, I, I don't read the daily bread and that's kind of like my manna for the week. I, I, I'm really becoming a student of the word of God because I love the God of the word. And if I really fall in love with that God of the word, I want to know what he says. This is a relational book. This is relational. And it's all about God saying, hey, 5.30 in the morning, whispering in your ear going, you, you know I'm crazy about you. you. You know you need to spend some time with me. Let's hang for about a half hour. Go get, go get that cup of joe. Let's, you can sip a coffee, but listen to me. I want to show you who I am. I want to show you how I love. I, I want to show you my will, my, my ways. I want to show you who you are. I want to show you how you can overcome some of those obstacles that you think that you had no chance of winning in. Now, let me hang with you a little bit. You hang with me. And all of a sudden, you start getting into that spiritual discipline and of hanging with Abba. And you'll walk away going, my life is radically transformed. I am Abba's child. I'm Abba's child. Oh,